Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name is James DePayne, and it's my pleasure to welcome everyone to today's event, Solar Winds and Cozy Bears, How Russian Hackers Compromise the U.S. Government, and How We Can Reduce the Chances of It Happening Again. The Solar Winds hack has really rocked the cybersecurity world, and with good reason. It has been described as the largest and most sophisticated hack ever. To give a quick rundown of what happened, Basically, it seems Russian hackers affiliated with their foreign intelligence service compromised a top-tier technology firm and placed malware in an update that went out to over 33,000 and was downloaded by about 18,000 users of the Oracle software. After the clients downloaded this seemingly legitimate update, the hackers gained access to their networks and were able to use that access to target information within those networks. The list of exposed organizations is sure to raise some eyebrows and includes a number of government departments like Treasury, Commerce, and Homeland Security, as well as a number of Fortune 500 companies. The breach itself went undiscovered for months and the full extent of what was compromised is still unknown to this day. So this is a big deal and really reflects the dangerous cyber environment we must navigate. We have a great program in store for you today and I'm delighted to invite our speakers to join me on screen as I tell you a bit about them. Chad Wolf is currently a visiting fellow here at Heritage, but before this, he was the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, an expert on counterterrorism, law enforcement, critical infrastructure, and economic security, to name a few. Mr. Wolf brings a firsthand perspective to the US side of this hack based on direct experience. Dr. Scott Jasper is a retired naval officer and a lecturer at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Specializing in defense strategy, hybrid warfare, and cyber policy, he recently authored a timely book on Russian cyber operations and brings expertise about the Russian side of this hack. Between the two of them, we should get some great perspectives on this incident and what we need to do going forward. So Mr. Wolf, if you don't mind going first, what would you say stood out to you about this hack? And is it a wake-up call for the U.S. on the need to get serious about cybersecurity? Well, thanks, James, and thanks for Heritage for putting the event on. Uh, let me just say from the outset, absolutely, the solar winds attack, I don't really think can be underestimated and how it's changing the landscape of how not only the U.S. government, but also the private industry is looking at cybersecurity. So we must remember that the attack or the hack was in fact global. Not only did it affect U.S. government, agencies here in the US, but obviously private sector companies around the world that have global footprints. And so it exposed some really fundamental cybersecurity uh, vulnerabilities. And I think if it wasn't for the private sector, I think there's a question of whether the federal government would still to this day know that such an attack uh, was underway. And so that's not a good position if you're sitting inside the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, or whether you're at NSA or you're at Cyber Command. So, uh, the fact that we rely on the on the public sector for a lot of our cybersecurity capabilities, I don't think can be underestimated. 
I think we also need to keep in mind that it wasn't just this one incident, right? So this is an ongoing, um, ongoing concern that we have, and that we know that Chinese actors, uh, we've seen reporting that they've also uh, hacked or, or infiltrated other vulnerabilities within the SolarWinds um, platform, as well as a Microsoft Exchange uh, platform as well. Uh, could be compromised and downloaded by much more than than the 18,000 that you'd mentioned in the in the opening, James. So at the end of the day, I think this is, uh, you know, what we experienced in 2020 under under this attack is really going to be a catalyst to change in the in the cybersecurity industry, not only in government, but in the private sector. And what we know is that advanced persistent threat actors uh, are highly sophisticated individuals. And so it's going to take all of what the U.S. government can do to bring to this issue, but also what the private sector can do as well. And how those two entities work together, I think, is going to be critically important, and that's really the challenge uh, as we move forward. Thank you, and Dr. Dr. Jasper, uh, a question for you now, just to, to kind of get this rolling. How do you think this type of um, of espion, cyber espionage, basically, fits into Russia's broader strategy, and what are they looking to gain from from hacks like this? James, a great opening question, and uh, again, uh, thank you for the privilege of being here, for your invitation, for Heritage, for sponsoring the event. Uh, I would definitely uh, concur with the notion that the SolarWinds hack, conducted by Cozy Bear in your title, is actually part of a larger Russian strategy. When you look at the 2015 Russian Federation National Security Strategy that was published in, again, 2015, it states a long-term interest is consolidating the Russian Federation status as a leading world power. Russia believes the implementation of what they consider to be an independent foreign and domestic policy is giving rise to opposition by the United States and its allies. And they see that through containment by political, economic, military, and informational pressure. The recent escalations of Russian aggressive and provocative actions that we are seeing um, such as the troop movements in Crimea and near the border of the Donbass region uh, in Ukraine, uh, the jets and the bombers that are flying near Alaska, near Allied airspace, and also this uh, news of three ballistic missile submarines simultaneously popping through the ice in the Arctic is nothing more than a return to great power competition. This was called that by the head of U.S. Northern Command, General Van Herrick, who also said Russia is trying to assert itself on the global stage in their influence and in their capabilities. Russia sees this sort of competition, geostrategic, as a zero-sum game. For it to win, it needs to weaken the influence of the West, particularly the United States. And Russia will use all means available, military, as we're seeing now in these parts of the world, and also non-military, such as through cyber. And they're gonna to try to shift the hierarchy of authority and prestige. So the SolarWinds hack was just part of this overall strategy. It was looking for and gaining access, in some cases, to the emails and schedules of top officials at some of those agencies that you described, and also the trade secrets of high-value corporate companies, mostly in IT and cybersecurity probably to gain advantage in negotiation operations and even to gain access to technology for future intrusions. As I look out in my book, what Russia does is exploits 
technical means and legal regimes to avoid detection and retribution. Solar winds epitomize both tenets. From a technical side, as you alluded to, it downloaded this malware called Sunburst in order to give it that back door. Uh, so it was abusing a supply chain vulnerability, which is something very difficult to detect. And after uh, it was installed in order to further evade detection, communicated uh, by mimicking legitimate traffic of SolarWinds to malicious C2 domains. After identification of who is part of that 18,000, it identified high priority targets and then installed uh, a second stage attack through uh, malware, uh, a tool, penetration tool called Cobalt Strike. From a legal classification, as you alluded to, this was espionage. Our US security agencies called it intelligence gathering effort. And that's something all nations do. So that makes our response even more difficult. And Russia knows that. But a key question that President Biden asked the new director of intelligence is whether the operation was limited to espionage and whether the Russians were going to use doors that essentially it created in addition to sunbursts to conduct some sort of harmful attacks. Well, last week, uh, the intelligence community released that report, but that sort of question has not been made seen uh, for debate yet. Thank you. Thank you. Now, um, Mr. Wolf, you, you referenced a public-private kind of aspect to this. So, um, you know, a lot of intellectual property is housed in, in private networks in the private sector. A lot of our critical infrastructure, obviously, is held in private hands. So what do you see what could be done basically to strengthen the public-private partnership and, and better help the private sector protect itself from, from some of these state actors like Russia and China that, that are involved here? Sure, I think it's a great question, James. And I think we need to remember that the security agency within DHS has really made a lot of good progress over the last three or four years, encouraging greater levels of information sharing and have developed hunt teams and response incident response capabilities um, that we have seen them use time and time again. But what we do know and what I experienced at DHS is when we have a large event such as solar winds, uh, and we're likely to see more of these, that their resources become constrained very quickly. Uh, there's only a limited amount of those teams and that, that type of capability at DHS, uh, and the need is far greater. And so the question is, how does CISA work with the private sector uh, and combine forces? Because obviously what CISA, or I should say NSA and others can bring to the table is obviously that intelligence uh, threat information. And what the private sector has is resources, expertise, uh, and folks that are far greater in capability than usually, but not always, that the federal government has. And so the question is, over time, how do we integrate these, these two together um, to provide uh, a better response, better capability over time. And so whether you're sharing information before an event, at you know during an event, or certainly after an event, uh, making sure that it's actionable and making sure that it's timely is absolutely critical. So that's sort of point one. Point two would be making sure that um, the victims are notified in a much more rapid manner, right? So if you're a victim, if you're a company out there that's 
making sure that we get that information out quickly so that that community within the private sector can take the appropriate actions. Right now, that notification chain, I would say, is a little limited. It usually requires someone from the federal government and or a business partner like a FireEye or, or another one of those services to notify. We've got to figure out how do we speed that up? That. How do we remove some of the barriers from doing that? So I think um, there are some things holding us back, whether from a legal standpoint or from a regulation standpoint, of what companies think about first versus what they should be focused on, which is alleviating uh, that penetration or at least providing that uh, to the larger community so that others can protect themselves at the end of the day. So I think really this fusion of bringing together the private sector capabilities uh, that they have along with uh, government capabilities. And these are folks outside of the civilian agencies uh, that have that intelligence, because that's what the federal government brings to the fight here, is the intelligence, uh, is that threat reporting that they can bring in and talk and fuse that with the private sector and what they're seeing. And so, you know, an inter integrated cyber command center was called for the cybersecurity uh, solarium. I think it was codified in the NDAA, 21 NDAA. And I think that's really the path forward here. Um, and it's all about sharing that information in a more timely manner, uh, but also sharing more and more of it uh, without worrying about um, any type of legal repercussions or confidential information. I think both of those are really good places that I think the federal government, the private sector can really um, you know, uh, expand on. Excellent. Thank you. And, and Dr. Jasper, so we, we talked a little bit about cyber espionage and, and kind of Russia's broader strategy, but there are also big proponents of information warfare. So how would you say hacks like this and, and some of their other activity fits into information warfare specifically? Right, uh, James, and that's the way the Russians think. They think about information warfare, unlike us uh, in the West, who think of cyber warfare in some cases. But uh, when you look at the definition from the Russian uh, Ministry of Defense of Information Warfare, it has a number of components. So SolarWinds was the component of undermining political, economic, social systems, gaining that information in order to gain advantage, as I said. But the other elements in that strategy are also very concerning. And that would be the aspect of psychological manipulation of the population, uh, which could be influence operations, or even uh, inflicting damage to information systems, processes, resources, critical and other structures, which could be, again, attack on critical infrastructure. So the scope of the threat is definitely large, it's multifaceted, and we've seen all of it. So let's start, of course, with information, uh, I should say influence operations. Uh, we know that for the last election, just like in 2016, that there was Russian interference. The National Intelligence Council uh, assessed in March through a report released to the public that Russian President Putin had authorized these influence operations aiming to denigrate, uh, at that time, candidate Biden and exacerbate social political divisions in the United States. The difference between 2020 and 2016 was what we did not see in this cycle was actual attacks upon election infrastructure. We also really did not see the hacks and leaks. We saw the hacks, uh, and Microsoft had reported in September that up to 200 organizations, 
tied to political parties, consultants, had been penetrated. However, we did not see the leaks of that information. What we did see is continual social media barrage. But this time around, it was more targeted and more deceptive. Uh, the IRA has been redesignated as the uh, Latvia Internet Research Agency, and they use uh, not fake accounts, but more real type accounts like organizations that they were able to gain control of and send more targeted messaging. At the same time, we also saw, as before, Russian state media such as Russia Today, RT, and Sputniks um, with shows, videos that were attempting to undermine democratic uh, processes in the United States. So we had evidence of this influence campaign. We've also seen evidence that the Russians have been inside our critical infrastructure. In 2018, uh, the U.S. Treasury and also CISA released various reports that showed that Russian government cyber actors had penetrated up to 20 or 24 utilities. And they did this by compromising vendors that had trusted relationships uh, with those organizations and then using those as pivot points to gain access. And they moved across networks to the point reported by DHS, they could have actually taken control or thrown switches. And the Russians had done this before. They did this in 2015 in Ukraine when they penetrated three energy companies and uh, actually flipped the switches of uh, substations, which took uh, power offline to up to 225,000 customers. So this is a real threat, the threat of disruption of critical infrastructure, in addition to what we've seen in 2016, 2018, and 2020 in our election system. Thank you. So I have a I have a question for for kind of both of you, but we'll start with Mr. Wolf, and this has to do with with deterrence. So influence operations, attacks on critical infrastructure, cyber espionage, all of these I think are things that we would like to prevent if possible. So um, what could be done? And, and this this applies to you know Russia's the focus today, but this this could apply to to China, Iran, North Korea. What could be done to deter some of these cyber adversaries? And should we be looking at options outside of cyber, including cyber, kind of all of the above? And then, and then Mr. Wolf, if you want to comment on anything that, that uh, Dr. Jasper just said, feel free to do that as well. Sure, it's a great question. Um, I, I think when you look at deterrence, obviously there's a lot of, of what I mentioned as far as how do we prevent these types of attacks? And so sharing that information and have a more collaborative relationship with the private sector and the federal government is certainly gonna be part of that. I think once you look outside of cyber and you say, okay, if we can't prevent every attack, every attack is gonna be difficult. Obviously some of these nation state actors are very, not only persistent, but sophisticated. Uh, so this idea that you're able to stop each and every one. But I think as we look outside of cyber, I think we really need to strengthen and look at some of these international rules regarding nation states that use this type of capability, right? So that we, ha we have international norms and rules right now on nation states attacking one another kinetically, right? And so I think we need to figure out how we can also adapt some of those measures. I know there's work underway in the cybersecurity realm so that there are some limitations, there are some boundaries. We'll see how that works at the end of the day. And we also need to hold nation states accountable, right? And so this talks about attribution. Uh, and we need to do that, the US government needs to do that as quickly as possible 
And the rub here has always been, at least during my time at DHS, is making sure that we do that by not giving away the goods, right? So not giving away, how does the US government know that it is Russian or it is Chinese or it is Iranian? How do we do that in a way so that we don't give up sources, that we don't give up that capability in that fight? So that is the challenge. But the quicker that we're able to do that, uh, to do that name and shame, uh, for lack of a better term, I think goes a long way. And it puts countries on notice that it's it's not okay to do this. It's not okay to continue to go down this realm because what we what we know, particularly out of solar winds, it wasn't just you know a cyber. It was cyber espionage by far, but it had much greater uh, capability to really disrupt. Uh, the supply chain throughout uh, throughout the country and throughout the world. And I think that goes a bridge too far. And so I think we need to look at both. Obviously, the attribution needs to be quicker, uh, but we also need to look at these international norms. Same same question to you, Dr. Dr. Jesper. Great. Well, uh, I definitely agree with a, a few of the, all the points that made by Mr. Wolf including the idea of information sharing and norms. And we can even circle back on norms later if you choose. Uh, the attribution case, uh, yes, uh, I do think we've gotten better in attribution, uh, but this is a challenge for us, as he alluded to, in that we don't reveal our sources and provide the evidence of attribution, which is part of the norms, actually, by the UNGE, to provide evidence of accusations. And that has empowered countries such as Russia and China to deny their involvement because there is no evidence. And that's, uh, I think, undercutting, unfortunately, our name and chain uh, strategy. I know the Biden administration right now is considering it reportedly uh, various aspects of retribution, such as sanctions and expulsion, which is more retortion, uh, unfriendly acts. Uh, we've tried that, of course, even in 2016. We've tried it in 2018. Uh, and we haven't had, of course, great success, but we're limited, again, by the type of attack. Uh, this is a very difficult situation for the administration now of what we will do. We are looking, of course, at other alleged uh, provocations, such as uh, the troop bounties in Afghanistan, uh, the interference which we've cited, and we might see a package of sanctions come forth which waters down the idea that it was just about solar winds, which again could be a bad precedent because we do that sort of thing too in the United States. But I think we need to continue to look internally uh, and not just information sharing, but also we need to strengthen resilience with our systems. We need to install uh, new sorts of solutions, these cloud-centric capabilities that have data correlation uh, for incident response, uh, and that includes things like machine learning, behavioral threat analytics. When you look at the companies that were involved in this, one of them was Palo Alto Networks, and it actually turns out that they had detected uh, this download I mentioned of the uh, uh, cobalt strike back in October. They saw it uh, because they were attacked. They were one of those hundred companies in, against one of their SolarWinds servers, and they saw the attempt to download Cobalt Strike, and they blocked it with what was called behavior threat analytics, one of these new technologies, and they reported that to SolarWinds. It just was seen as an isolated event at that time, not as the large attack it was. But these technologies work, and I think we need to work 
inside the federal government in particular to install those sort of technologies. Over. Thank you. So I have I have one more question for for both of you, and then we'll move to to some questions for from the audience. So um, advanced persistent threats have been have been referenced today, and you know basically it's an organization that is affiliated with a state actor sometimes, but sometimes it's a organized crime group or they do cyber espionage. So how how do these groups complicate our responses to cyber incidents, and what can the U.S. do to kind of better deal with with this more asymmetric threat from our adversaries. And Mr. Wolf, we'll start with you and then Dr. Jasper, whenever you're ready, you can you can tack on after that. Well, I would say certainly they make it more difficult and more uh, complicated at the end of the day. Um, again, they are very different than your your normal uh, cyber criminal or the cyber crime that you see out there that a lot of the private sector sees, the government sees, the malware. Um, in those types of things. And, and what we're talking about with SolarWinds and some of these other incidents is, is on a scale that's much more uh, different and much more difficult. And I think that needs to be recognized. I think going forward, how do we, you know, what are some proactive steps? I think it's important to remember that the federal government, I mentioned this a couple of times, federal government's a partner in this, but don't think that they are going to have the solution at the end of the day uh, to rescue everyone. So I think it's, again, it's that collaboration between the federal government uh, and the private sector. That being said, I think there are some huge investments that we need to make into CISA, uh, particularly their continuous uh, diagnostic and mitigation program, their CDM, right? This helps deliver cybersecurity tools and services to other federal networks and agencies that need these, uh, that needs this information. Uh, part of that is the threat hunting that I've talked about uh, to conduct proactive hunts across civilian networks to look at some of these issues. So I think that program, uh, I know it's been some investment by Congress here recently that can continue, I think can, needs to continue to uh, as we move forward. Uh, and then CIS's National Risk Management Center, I think is also very, very important. When we start looking across the 16 critical infrastructure sectors, I think we need to look at uh, obviously cybersecurity within each of those, but the information technology and communication sector is different in all of those because it, it, it plays a factor in all of those other sectors uh, across the board. And so how do we uh, do a better job of mapping this industry, match, mapping this sector to understand um, where uh, the, the critical impacts will be in a disruption or a future incident? It goes back to what Dr. Jasper was saying about building resilience, resilience back into the system. And I think that's a critical factor that CISA uh, has been great at over the last several years. I think they're going to continue in that. But when we look at more investment, I think those are just a couple of programs. Uh, I'm sure there is others uh, as I look at you know what's needed as we move forward. Yeah, so for the APTs, the, uh, you know, Russia in the past uh, somewhat hid behind these as proxies and these groups. You know, but the federal government has gotten uh, more uh, precise in the last 12 months in identifying in our reporting who really are these APTs. And uh, so some of our releases by the NSA and CISA have actually identified the groups by not just their name, like a fancy bear, uh, APT28, or cozy bear, and total winds APT29, but also by their military units. Uh, in the case of the GRU in particular. 
for Fancy Bear and also uh, for uh, Sandworm, which did a number of attacks like the Ukraine power grid that I mentioned earlier. So we now know that these are actual military units by designation in, for example, the GRU in some cases. So I think our attribution to that, back to Mr. Uh, Wolf's points earlier, has gotten more uh, uh, precise in that regard. Uh, but we are seeing some criminal overlap uh, with those APTs. Uh, and uh, I think a very good example was uh, when the Treasury Department sanctioned and also our Department of Justice indicted the Evil Corps, uh, which is a criminal, cyber criminal organization operating out of Moscow. Uh, what we found was the group's leader, uh, Maxim uh, Yakovitz, uh, was providing direct assistance to the Russian government, specifically FSB, and that's the Federal Security Service. And he was providing assistance, acquiring confidential documents through cyber able means, cyber operations and so forth. So we are seeing a nexus of their criminals in Russia to these APTs, and we know and we believe, I should say we believe that they actually hire and entice those cyber criminals to join their efforts. So that is becoming a little bit more publicly known, both in who are the APTs and some of these criminals that are working for them. Thank you. Excellent, thank you. Now I think we'll turn to, to some questions from the audience. So, so the first one I, I think is directed at at Mr. Wolf, but Dr. Jasper, I'll give you a chance to comment as well. So, Mr. Wolf, could you kind of describe the relationship between the Department of Homeland Security and some of our military cyber components like Cyber Command and um, the National Security Agency, and kind of what that relationship looks like, and if there's room for more collaboration or or other initiatives to to strengthen their cooperation. Well, sure, and I think there's, uh, to answer the, the second part of that question first, uh, there's always room for more collaboration, and I think uh, we have seen that over the last three or four years uh, since CISA really stood up as an operating entity within the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, but obviously, they are uh, close partners, not only with Cyber Command, but also NSA, um, and so there's a lot of great relationships there. Again, though, CISA is a civilian agency, uh, whereas the other two uh, that you've mentioned and I've mentioned are not. Uh, so there are some differences there, um, and their responsibilities are different, uh, and so that's important to keep in mind. Obviously, a lot of what CISA does is that outreach to the private sector, is that uh, making sure that they stay close with those different critical infrastructure sectors, making sure that they understand what they do uh, and how they're doing it, what are the concerns. And so they're the primary interface. They're not the only interface. Obviously, NSA and others are talking to them. They're the primary interface on sharing threat information, and they do that a number of information sharing uh, groups and associations, ISACs, and, and others, and they try to share that information. It's a two-way street. So uh, that's, you know, a lot of what CISA provides is, is providing the U.S. federal government that link back to the private sector, and they do a pretty good job. They can continue to strengthen that. Um, now, obviously, when you look at what NSA and Cyber Command can do from a cybersecurity perspective, you then start to talk about offensive operations, right? And so that's very different than what we have been talking about, which is more defensive. How do you detect? How do you deter? And then how do you hold folks accountable? And so obviously CISA working with the White House and others are going to do that. Uh, but it is a team effort. At the end of the day, there's a lot of different elements of the US government that touch on cybersecurity. They all do it a little differently. Uh, but it, you know, at my, from my time at DHS, it's not fragmented. A lot of people think that if you have 
too many cooks in the kitchen becomes too fragmented and no one knows what they're doing. And that's really the opposite of what I saw uh, during my time at, at DHS and the great folks at CISA. And that close collaboration, uh, not only within the agencies, but at the White House and others, I think is, you know, really moved our cybersecurity defenses in the last several years. Uh, and then we'll continue. Again, what I've heard from the Biden administration thus far is promising on this front, uh, filling a number of positions and moving a lot of the work that's uh, been going on to a new stage and a new phase. So I think that's encouraging. Yeah, I'd just like to add uh, to what Mr. Wolf said about the team effort, because it appears to me to be the face of the U.S. government. Uh, as I was talking earlier about advisories, assessments, they're usually joint in nature. Anywhere from two to four uh, of these agencies are publishing these documents. Some of them might be the result of those plant forward missions that Mr. Wolf talked about at the very beginning. So I think there's a the united front. It's definitely a team effort uh, here in this regard, more so than we've ever seen. Excellent, thank you. And in our next question, uh, I think Mr. Wolf, you're you're going to be up again. So it, it has to do with supply chains and. Uh, you know, in these private networks, is there a role for the U.S. government to compel some of these um, kind of important entities to strengthen their own cybersecurity, or are there incentives the U.S. government can can provide? So, so basically, I think the thrust of the question is, what can the U.S. government do to help the private sector and encourage them to strengthen their their cybersecurity? Yeah, I think that's a you know that's been an ongoing question that DHS has struggled with and system. CBD before them, uh, as they were called. Uh, CISA, for the most part, uh, is not a regulatory agency. Um, it does a little bit, but very, very little. And I think, James, uh, that question really asking the question should we go further and should DHS through CISA start regulating entities regarding supply chain security and the like? I'm not sure I'm, I'm quite there yet. I think there's a number of incentives that can be provided. I think. The private sector should be incentivized to do that on their own. Uh, but if they don't do that, um, I think you know, we certainly need to take a look at that. Um, again, I haven't come down one way or another. I, I'm always a little hesitant to say the federal government should continue to regulate, regulate, regulate uh, on this. Uh, but there are sometimes some matters of national security that you need to make sure are in place. Uh, so there are, there are specific companies not doing proper cyber hygiene not taking the appropriate steps that are in critical parts of the supply chain, then yes, some type of action should be taken at the end of the day. I see. And uh, Dr. Jasper, unless you want to, unless you want to tack on onto that, I have a, a question for you. My only um, comment would be: I think again, we have to concentrate on post-compromise activity, uh, as I alluded to earlier, the ability to detect and respond inside the network after attack. Uh, supply chain is very difficult. The way the Russians were able to disguise that download is very difficult to detect. Uh, so we have to be prepared uh, to be breached. And that's one of the things we can't lose sight of. Your question, please. Yeah, so this has to do with uh, kind of Russian probing of our critical infrastructure. Is this something that's going to be held in reserve for a wartime scenario? Is this something that we should be more concerned about in, you know, during a crisis or peacetime. So can you just kind of elaborate how the Russians may view disruption of critical infrastructure as part of their, their cyber strategy? 
Well, uh, the Russians definitely see information warfare as the first step toward confrontation or war. And you could say in some ways that we're in uh, that state already with Russia. We are in that phase. We used to call it phase zero in military planning of positioning. So uh, you, I would definitely concur that uh, this could be more of a wartime footing type preparation. Uh, their incentive to go into our networks and actually flip our switches, uh, knowing that might elicit a more forcible response because then under international law, that could be seen as potentially a violation of sovereignty and so forth, uh, which could elicit even a military response from us. They probably don't want to go into that sort of escalation. So they're most likely going to keep that in reserve. And uh, we hope it never comes to any type scenario such as that. But I think that's a, a good assessment to make. I see. And um, Mr. Wolf, another one for you. We, we've had a couple questions in, in the chat here about your personal email account while you were at DHS. And of course, there have been press reporting that that uh, it, it was it was kind of in, involved in, in this leak. So how did that either change your perspective on, on the hack itself or, or any of your digital behavior or any other comments you'd like to make on, on that front? Sure, and I'll keep some of those comments limited just by the very nature of the uh, of the issue at hand. I will say though, early on, obviously as as Solar Winds was just beginning, and we were just notified of the uh, event uh, that had occurred, and so CISA leadership came to the you know DHS front office and said, you know, uh, we have a significant incident underway um, that we have been made aware of. Um, and this is this is generally how they started a conversation. You know, that something is underway. And it's usually on a scale, you know, a scale of one to 10, it's usually hovering around a two or a three. It's kind of your, your daily things that they see, that they catch, cyber criminals, malware, things of that nature. In this case, it was obviously very different. This was a scale of around a nine on a 10 uh, on how bad it, it is and could be. And at that time, and again, this is day one of, of, of really us and the federal government knowing there was a lot of unknowns at the time. Uh, we didn't know how far and extent, a lot of the information we know now, we did not know then. Um, and so it was a week or so, or maybe it was even less than that, uh, that they came back once it was known that other uh, that other federal agencies were starting to be compromised and those were starting to occur almost on a daily basis. We were hearing more and more about them. Uh, and then obviously DHS uh, became one of those as well. And so there were a number of different offices, specific offices that CISA was able to determine were being targeted. Um, and that, I, I won't go into great detail about that, uh, but just know that there were certain ones. So it wasn't the entire network uh, to include the DHS front office. Now, in my mind, and my first question was, these are all unclassified uh, email accounts. And the answer is yes. And so that is concerning, but obviously much more concerning is if they somehow, some way got access to the classified accounts uh, and lines that DHS does the, the vast majority of its most critical work on, whether it's at CISA or whether it's at headquarters or elsewhere, and a lot of that information there. You know, when they told me, hey, look, your your account, one of your email accounts, uh, I had a couple at the time, um, you know, could be hacked. They're not going to find anything other than, you know, I'm late for an event uh, type of email. So it's not critically important, um, I thought, in my view. Obviously, the access is what I was more, most concerned about. If they have the ability to do that, what else do they have the ability to do? 
or what else do we know do we not have insight into and so just the fact that they're able to do that was my primary concern the fact that they got my email and knew that i was running late to meetings or i had a, a schedule change not that big of a deal at the end of the day um, but the overall access was uh, one last question from the from the audience and then i think i'll, I'll also let you guys just wrap wrap it up with with closing remarks as as well at the kind of at the end of the, the question so this one is basically how likely is there to be further russian interference in future u.s elections and kind of what should we do to either reduce that mitigate it or, or prevent it and then feel free to answer that question and and then provide your closing remarks and dr jasper i think we'll start with with you for this one sure uh, well uh as i was stating earlier in the 2020 election uh the extent of interference was actually much less by russia it was more indirect uh, less uh, of a cyber aspect to it. And for the most part, it seems that the efforts of our U.S. Cyber Command were successful. Uh, they were very active inside Russian networks, uh, taking down, for example, Dragonfly, one of the organizations, uh, after the press conference uh, that, that was released on interference by Iran and Russia. So it seemed like we had done a good job of pushing back and maybe it wasn't as important to the Russians. So we could still see this sort of interference uh, in the future, but we don't know if it'll be by cyber means or not. Uh, moving forward, I, I think I'd like to kind of revisit, as I stated, what Mr. Wolf was saying about norms. Because we didn't get much of a chance to talk about that. And that would be that we do need enforceable norms. Uh, and we need our allies to help us to support those. Uh, just like uh, Chancellor Merkel called Putin and said, get out of Ukraine uh, last Thursday, we need that sort of vocal support from our allies to enforce norms. And SolarWinds was a violation of norms. Uh, the ones the Russians have proposed through 2018, uh, in 2018, the UN General Assembly, it, as far as embedding malware in the supply chain. So we need to call that out. That's part of that name and shame that Mr. Wolf identified. And stick with our allies in not accepting this sort of behavior as something that will allow Russia to continue to stretch the boundary as they have in many of their activities in many domains and as we see here today inside. Thank you. Sure, I'll take the uh, election security question first. I think we'll probably continue to see attempts uh, to interfere in U.S. elections. I think obviously uh, somewhat successful in 2016, and I agree with Dr. Jasper, not very successful as far as targeting election infrastructure uh, in 2020. And that's it, that didn't happen by happenstance. Uh, that's the result of a lot of hard work, not only by CISA and the relationships they have with state and local election officials and making sure that those systems are hardened and uh, as well as election infrastructure uh, equipment and providers, but also uh, with uh, Cyber Command, NSA, and others who took, as Dr. Jasper uh, outlined, some proactive steps. So I think it's, I know we were uh, inside DHS hyper-focused on this incident, or sorry, this issue leading up uh, to the 2020 election. And I think it's about that leadership and it's about that focus on the mission as, uh, as elections roll around. And what you don't want to do is just focus on election security two months before the election. So 
this will be a sustaining ongoing mission for CISA. And the, the, one of the really challenges they have is uh, as this, you know, as elections die away, die away in a sense of, you know, it's two years away, uh, a little under two years to the midterms, making sure that they continue to press the limits, continue to do their work, knowing that, you know, they may have some other things on their plate that take some higher priority. So I think that's, that's important. And then I would just end by circling back with some of the themes that I've talked here about, which is that, that public-private sector partnership that I think is only going to make all of us more successful at the end of the day. Uh, and when we look at Congress making sure that they're providing enough resources to the federal government, I think that's also an important point. And we shouldn't let events like solar winds or other other you know events that occur take away or have folks step back, which is normally the case in DC. Something bad happens, people start to point fingers, and then resources start to dry up. And I think it actually needs to be the opposite. We need to continue to fund. Uh, not only CISA, but obviously DOD, NSA, others, uh, and look at what we can do for the private sector as well. On um, whether there are some, um, you know, funding capabilities and resources and streams that we can provide them to incentivize them to again increase their cyber hygiene. A lot of those services are offered by CISA at no cost, but we know a lot of the the private sector uh, decides not to do that for a variety of different reasons, and will either try to do that on their own. Uh, which could be problematic, or they'll hire an outside entity to do that. So I think that uh, continuing collaboration is critically important as we move forward. Excellent. Well, I'd like to thank our panelists for sharing their insights on SolarWinds hack, and thank our audience for joining us for this most important conversation. If you work on the Hill, at a think tank, or just have questions, please contact me using the information listed on the screen. I'd love to continue the conversation. Immediately following this event, you'll receive a survey that we hope you'll complete so that we can bring ideas that you care about to the public square. To see the events we have coming up, check out heritage.org events. Again, thank you and have a great day.